0: And like, obviously, that's part of my story was going to treatment. So I get to now go and put on these programs for people that are in treatment. And I have been able to like they've never been on a rock wall before. They're terrified of heights and I get to watch them and support them. I I teach them how to tie a knot um, and get them on top of the wall and just watch them like break down these barriers in front of my eyes and just like thinking that i have like a little bit of part of that and now some of these people are avid rock climbers and that's like a huge part of their recovery and they stayed sober ever since that time so and like there's i have several people that i've been able to witness that with and you know like they're i got their numbers in my phone and i you know I, I still talk to them we go climb together like i mean that that's what it's all about
1: This is the Nature Untold Podcast, and I'm your host, Emily Holland. This podcast is about all kinds of sobriety, addiction, recovery, as they intersect with the outdoor community and industry. Welcome to the show. As I get older, I realize how much outside help I need to make my body feel as good as possible and to perform at the level that I want it to perform. That's why I'm stoked that this episode is sponsored by The Cairo Lab. Dr. Ellen Kindelsberger works with people in all types of sports, or just those who want to get stronger, and helps to improve the body's ability to function and perform better. Go check out thechirolab.com for more information and to schedule an appointment with Dr. Ellen. I don't know about you, but all this be indoors time called winter is bumming me out. Spring is kind of, sort of happening and I can slowly feel the ground thaw out. It is almost time for the best time of year, camping season. This year, grab yourself a new UST gear tent or sleeping pad for your camping delights. I'm obsessed with the Filmatic sleeping pad myself, and my small dog Kata is also a big fan. Check them out at ustgear.com or on Instagram at ustgear. Now, on to the show. Hello, beautiful humans, and welcome back to the Nature Untold podcast. I'm your host, Emily Holland, as I've explained in the intro, but here I am. Thank you for coming back, and I appreciate you. Before we get into who's on this episode and what this episode is about, I did just want to do some housekeeping. So first things first, if you haven't already, make sure you follow us on Instagram. It's Nature Untold Podcast. There'll be updates All the time coming from there. And then, if you want to engage with the community, definitely check out the Nature Untold podcast Facebook group. We are doing prompts in there, and people are connecting, and it's really fun. And I just want it to grow and grow and grow and be a great place for people to connect. Okay. So, that is the first thing. Last thing, that's not the first thing. That was the second thing I said, Emily get it together. Really showing you guys the whole situation here in my mind. Okay. Last thing for housekeeping. If you have not already, and a lot of you have, so thank you so much. But if you haven't already, please do leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That is super helpful for future conversations and the future of bringing you this podcast. So always love to hear from you there. And I think I'm done with housekeeping. Before we dive in, I have a little bit of a preface for you. I said I would always be transparent with you about what I'm experiencing, what I'm learning as I go through this journey. And before we get into the actual interview with Jay Treblehorn, who is a fantastic guy, I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. Before we get into that, though, I do just want to preface it a little bit with something that was going through my brain and my body as I was going through this interview. And Jay and I have talked about this via email afterwards, after I edited it. Um, And basically, the concept is that I was bristling during our interview. And I'm obsessed with this concept recently this concept of this internal thing that's happening where you're reacting to something. That traditionally, maybe you either learned early on, you were socialized to believe, like, I don't know, that uh, there should be a stigma around addiction and alcoholics and drug addicts, and it's conflicting inside you with what you know to be true through growth and therapy or whatever's in your toolkit for your own path, And they kind of conflict inside and you don't really know which one is going to take over and sometimes it's the bristle and sometimes it's the growth and in this circumstance when jay was telling his story i let the bristle take over it took me over i felt like i needed to push along the story Um, instead of letting jay really Dig in to all the things he had experienced, which are so, so important and crucial to obviously not only him, but then for for you all to hear as part of his overall story. So I just wanted to talk about that up front because I do feel like these things are really important to recognize, right? I feel like this was a really important story to be told, Jay's story. And I personally felt like the bristle took over at a certain point and I wasn't able to overcome it. And that was just a really big lesson for me. So I hate to talk so much about myself before the actual guest, but I just want you to be aware of that as you're listening. And, and maybe this will help you to think about what things bristle within you when you're going through your day-to-day. You know, what things bring up some old Habits or things that you've known to be true for a very long time or were ingrained in you from a young age and that you've since unlearned, but that's still part of you, right? So I hope that that will prompt you to have some curiosity about your own bristle. I just also wanted to share that because. I think it's important to understand that I am still learning how to destigmatize my own sobriety and how that fits into the greater narrative. And so I just really want to own up to the fact that during parts of this interview, I didn't show up in the way that I wanted to. I didn't show up in the most empathetic, understanding way. And that's totally on me. So it's not like I'm blaming this internal thing for challenging me and and that's the problem. It's that, hey, I'm recognizing that I could have done this a lot better uh, with a lot more empathy. And um, I just want you to be aware of that as you're listening. And I really appreciate you hearing me out. And I just want you to know I take an immense amount of responsibility when it comes to these conversations. I take that very seriously when I don't show up in the way that I want to. So just want you to be aware of that. And thanks for listening to me rant for a while. And I do really think this episode with Jay is going to be fantastic to listen to. He's an awesome guy. He's an instructor for the Phoenix, which is a sober, active community. He's based out of Denver. And he just talks through this kind of challenging you know, period of years that he had with addiction. And now he's a guide that gets to kind of showcase what it means to go in the outdoors and how can that can be a crucial, crucial part of your recovery. So please, please enjoy this episode with Jay Troublehorn. Welcome to the Nature Untold Podcast. I'm here with Jay Treblehorn, the best last name ever. Hey, how's it going?
0: Going pretty well. Going going well today.
1: Yeah, good. All right, I'm going to ask a fun question up front. What's the last thing you binge watched that people may not assume you would binge watch?
0: Probably Frasier. (laughs) <laughs> um that is like my go-to show I probably watched that through from the first to last episode at least five times over the last decade or so and I recently went through and watched it all again just for fun got most um most episodes memorized at this point
1: oh my gosh I totally didn't expect that that was like a very <laughs> that
0: was most a big laugh uh, yeah yeah
1: Good. Nice. All right. So we were kind of talking before we started about like how things are going lately, but just tell us about your world lately, what's taking up your time and what you've been do- up to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So obviously an interesting time um, with COVID for a lot of different reasons. Uh, don't want to get too deep into that, but I'll talk more like on the recovery aspect of that. Mm. It's been a challenge with the recovery scene. I think a lot of us really value that community aspect, in person aspect. So kind of navigating around that um, has always been a challenge. And again, work was always a part of mine and getting shut down for that has been difficult, you know, trying to positive in in all of it and getting outside. The fires were kind of a a drag, obviously, as of recently, and shut down a lot of the national forest around here, which I applauded them taking those those precautions but that's that's back open we got a little snow on the ground the trails are nice it's been you know on and off nice weather so getting outside climbing still still biking and hiking almost almost but i didn't put on the snowshoes so you gotta kind of like this time of year when you can fluctuate and get doing different things so and see some snow in the mountains we got some resorts opening up so that's that's always some excitement
1: Yeah, I love a multi-sport day. That's one of my favorite things about um, living in Colorado is, you know, I think there was a couple days last year where we skied in the morning and then came back down and did either a trail run or a rock climbing uh, or go into a crag or something like that. And that is the best. Isn't that the best
0: right now we call it so we got we we, we got the trifecta when we um oh, excuse me get, yeah <laughs> we got terms we yeah we're keep it legit huh? but yeah, yeah. snowboarding and rock climbing and mountain biking all in one day yeah pretty pretty awesome that we live in an area that we can do that
1: yeah so but you're not from colorado right you're from minnesota originally is that right
0: correct yeah born and raised in uh, minnesota Alexandria, nice. a small small little lake town in west central minnesota
1: So when we were talking last time, you talked about how you were introduced to the outdoors at a young age. Can you talk a little bit about how that was part of your life when you were growing up?
0: So I, uh, you know, if you've ever been to Minnesota, there's not like a ton of things going on there, especially when you grow up in a small town, not, you know, nightlife is not really a thing um, or any aspect of that. So getting outdoors, <laughs> getting out on the lakes, you know, our, our fun kind of lived and died by the lakes. In the summer, that's all we ever did. You know, I was from a young age, that's my first memories is being on the water. You know, it would get too cold and we'd just wait for the lakes to freeze so we could get out on the snowmobiles, go ice fishing, if it wasn't for the lakes, it'd be a kind of a boring place up there. But, you know, it is beautiful. And, you know, there's a lot of um, um, kind of culture surrounds. Um uh, being outdoors there um, a lot of hunting and that kind of stuff so I had you know a pretty uh, good appreciation for the outdoors at an early age and my parents my dad especially you know really encouraged that so
1: I definitely thought that you were gonna say once the lakes froze over that you guys were like ice skating and playing hockey not snowmobiling oh
0: we did that too I mean oh yeah okay. pond hockey that's like a uh, religion up north you know yeah, yeah pond hockey is very much a real thing definitely did a little bit of that too
1: sweet yeah I imagine like a very picturesque, traditional hockey vibe up in that area of the woods, similar it, to like the Northeast. Kind of like it's really yeah. cold. You don't see a yep. lot of sunlight.
0: <laughs> yep, no, that's uh, definitely. I would say that's very true. I was actually a basketball player randomly, but I still definitely played hockey a little bit.
1: You played basketball too. I did
0: too. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I still, I haven't been playing much in the last few years, uh, literally because that's like the one sport that I get injured more than anything, but it's so intense. Yeah. Yeah, It's crazy. And yeah, I definitely kind of have a Michael Jordan complex when it (laughs) comes to um, playing. So yeah, I had to kind of slow that one down a little bit.
1: What do you mean? Like just too competitive?
0: I get very competitive and very angry and um, yeah, which is completely not in my nature, but Give me on the basketball court and yeah, I turn into a menace.
1: There's something about it. I'm not like that either in regular life. And yeah, even if I watch a game now, I won't even care who's winning or who's losing. I don't really like the NBA I like the uh, yeah. you know, I like to watch college oh, yeah. sometimes. I watch it now and I don't even care who's winning or who's losing. Yeah. And I'm still like yelling at the TV, you know. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Why did you do that? That wasn't a foul. Like so yeah. <laughs> Get over it, Emily. Okay, well, so we have where you grew up. And, and one of the things that you mentioned where uh, when we were talking before is that at an early age, you started to kind of deal with some anxiety and depression stuff, uh, maybe before a lot of other people were aware of that as uh, something that they were dealing with. Yeah, just at a younger age than most folks. So can you talk a little bit about you know how that came on?
0: I think people always called me like a shy kid. And for some reason, I mean, I, that always bugged the fuck out of me. Like that, you know, I, I knew that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm an introverted person and I'm not like, you know, don't need to be the center of attention anyway. So yeah, there's that aspect. But yeah, I was. I think it was always more than that. And I don't think I really realized that until, you know, actually somewhat recently that I always just kind of felt out of place. Um, in social situations, there was a, um, not a normal feeling. Um, and I guess you could kind of chalk that up to like, yeah very anxious um, anxiety kind of type feeling and I think there's always been just that that aspect of, of you know depression and I don't think like I really really thought much or dwelled on it until you know you start to come to terms with um, why you do some of the things that you do especially when looking at addiction so yeah that's that definitely started at a, at a fairly early age and one of the things about growing up in Minnesota is you know especially I, I think especially as a male, like you don't, you don't talk about that kind of stuff. You don't, you, you don't really share your feelings. Um, there's that kind of that macho aspect, um, of life there sometimes in the Midwest, great people. But yeah, like we don't talk, we don't talk about it. You, just, you hold your feelings in and then I guess eventually you die. I don't know. But <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's not, that wasn't really an aspect of growing up. Like, Oh, let's talk about our feelings kind of deal. So I think that just kind of sat there and mm. just kind of got worse as time went on.
1: What do you think about the introversion and shyness now? You know, I I think a lot of kids are like made fun of for that when they're younger. And now that I'm in a place where I understand it a little bit more, and maybe this is the same for you. I wonder how you feel about this. I'm like, oh, just the world is built for extroverts, like the loudest in the room gets the attention, you know, the, the person who's like bubbly or whatever, and like going around at parties, social butterfly, whatever, you know, the more I read about it and understand about it, it it's kind of uh, jarring to realize how much it's built around that one, probably half and half. So do you feel like you've kind of come to terms with introversion and figured out ways to like be okay with it and, and make it part of your identity a bit more?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's still there's still definitely times where I wish I was more outspoken and had a little bit more courage to, you know, get up and do things that make me uncomfortable. There's still that aspect. But like, no, nah, like I'm pretty comfortable with who I met as a, as a person and like, you know, kind of be able to harness that introversion as well. That's been kind of an amazing journey. I'm only like just now kind of um, really get into that and kind of figuring out what that looks like. But, um, you know, and, and on, on the other hand, it's like, if I talk, people are like, hold on, shut up, Jay's about to say something, you know, because <laughs> like if, if they talk, if I'm going to talk, people know that I am I have something to say and they're going to want to listen because it's it's sometimes as far into between when I actually speak up. So when I do, I think it kind of has more weight behind it with some in certain aspects.
1: Yeah, I think that's totally true. So what are some of the ways you said you're harnessing your introversion and, and maybe that's it? You're like, I'm commanding a room because people want to hear what I have to say. But what are some of the other ways that you feel like you've started to, to harness that?
0: One of the big ways, especially like in my work is, you know, I, I have to get up in front of a lot of people and talk all the time and that's not really comfortable for me. But on the other hand, I'm really good at creating one-on-one connections with people that are oftentimes deeper in that sense and I have found ways to do that really quickly and I and I definitely know that's part of being an introvert. You usually have, you know, you're more likely to have one or two close relationships and you're able to cultivate those relationships in a way that a lot of other people can't. So I think when I'm when I'm teaching, that's one of my kind of niches is I'm able to, you know, connect with people on this one on one level in a deeper sense that makes them want to, you know, either come back to my class or, you know, find encouragement and and what's you know, either I have to say, or what the program I'm running has to, you know, means to their life kind of thing.
1: Mm-hmm. I my partner is an introvert as well, and there's been a lot mm-hmm. of learnings because I don't know if you can tell this about me, but I'm not. And um,
0: yeah, I, I could guess that. Yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> like I've learned so much, and one of the things that you said, where you're just like, "No, shut up, this guy's talking. We gotta mm-hmm. hear what he's gonna say." Totally true. And then the other piece I think is like your superpower is just like. You, I feel like introverts and probably you in this way, like the way that you listen to people is like a way that people don't often feel listened to. There's a certain way where you feel like understood by an introvert where an extrovert might not give you the same listening skills, honestly. Like that's it.
0: Yeah. as introverts, I think we also learn how to um, navigate in a world that's not, like you were saying, this is kind of not built for us. So I think a lot of times people assume that I'm super confident and extroverted. And then when I explain to them, nope, I'm not at all. This is sometimes just an act. Then it also, it speaks to both sides kind of deal. So.
1: Yeah. So we keep talking about you teaching. So we should probably Mm -hmm. (laughs) dive into what you do. Um, We'll talk a little bit, I think, about, you know, your journey on your own, but as far as what you do for living and teaching, teaching, you want to talk a little bit about where you're working and what you do?
0: Yeah. So I work for um, an organization called The Phoenix. Um, We are a nonprofit organization who specializes in, where we call ourselves a sober active community. And we basically only have one requirement for membership and that's 48 hours of continuous sobriety. So people are welcome to attend any of our classes, both like online or our events, you know, from rock climbing to mountain biking, to CrossFit, to yoga. Um, And again, it's all free. As long as you got that 48 hours of continuous sobriety, so I'm kind of an all-around instructor there. I do specialize in um, outdoor programming, teach rock climbing, mountain biking, hiking, snowshoeing, um, and any other outdoor kind of events um, I'm involved in somewhere or another. Um, and I also teach uh, boxing and do some group fitness instruction as well.
1: <laughs> Just everything that they offer?
0: Yeah, I kind of like to dab on everything. I, I, I don't, I, I mean, if I really had to, I could probably teach a yoga class. It would not be good because those yoga teachers are amazing. But um, I could probably like slide by if I really had to. We um, started in Colorado up in uh, Boulder couple different locations in the colorado area and we now have uh, i should have done my research before on my own company um, but we've been expanding so much in the last year i can't even keep track of all the locations we have Um, we have like a total of 40 including remote locations um, located throughout the country at this point from florida new jersey new york texas idaho few in california as well so we're kind of spread out all over and just really have been expanding in in the last couple years it's been amazing
1: that's awesome yeah i feel like i think i first heard of the phoenix uh 2018 i think Mm -hmm. and since then i just can't stop seeing stuff about it you know what i mean (laughs) That's really cool. I think that just speaks to the greater movement to people just wanting to live a different lifestyle. So that's awesome. How does one be certified for that many things? Like how do you um, <laughs> how do you have that many certifications?
0: So <laughs> surprisingly I don't have like a ton of certifications. I have some basic um I did, you know, I, I so I did um, end up graduating from Western State University with a degree in recreation and outdoor education, which is kind of um, an all-encompassing type mm-hmm. of deal. And, you know, with the, with the outdoor world, there's we're getting more organized with all our certifications. But for years, it was kind of like, oh, you're really good at climbing. You should go guide climbing, you know. Um, but now, you know, we do have the AMGA and all that. So we do have um, certifications in 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 those areas and then the one kind of standard for outdoor type programming is having your wilderness first responder for sure so that's yeah those are kind of the big ones and then I also have like a CrossFit level one certification and some avalanche certifications as well so but yeah there's a lot more to get I'm I'm, I'm kind of working on that right now much <laughs> much much more to go
1: well that's incredible I mean I love hearing about this because I think to your point before like the connection and knowing that you have a place to go is, is a big part of uh, sobriety and recovery so that's really awesome so We can talk more about the Phoenix at some point, but I'd love to just kind of take a step back and understand your journey with addiction and sobriety and and, and Mm -hmm. into recovery. So first, I, I just want to kind of level set and understand for you, you know, what does sobriety actually
0: mean? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. You know, my, my definition on that, um, both personally and just my general definition has changed over the years. And now, um, oftentimes, instead, instead of like, I still identify as an addict, absolutely. And I, and I say, you know, I'm in sobriety. But i more often referred to it as I'm in I'm active recovery. So that's kind of a different, different way to define that for me in the sense that I'm actively, you know, working a lifestyle and trying to make myself better as like a human being in whatever realm I'm in currently. So, mm-hmm. you know, just for me, just being sober wasn't all that great. It was just like I was the same person. I just wasn't using drugs. Um, so, yeah, being in active recovery, like I'm actively working different programs, trying to make myself better in, um, in you know, several different ways. Yeah. And it's a constant progression, you know, I mean, there's always things I wish I could say like, ah, yeah, I'm done, you know, like, I, I got this. No, like, I'm still a piece of shit, like a lot of the times. Um, <laughs> and I still need to work on that. And I realize that, but I think, yeah, just being aware of that, and just continually trying to progress towards something better. Is kind of my definition of uh, being in sobriety or being in recovery.
1: So, when did this all start for you? So, we kind of talked about the anxiety and the depression early on. So, when did it start for you? Were you in your teens? Like, how did it begin?
0: Yeah, I was pretty young. I don't remember, like, a lot of people remember that first time. I remember, like, the first time I drank, maybe. I don't, but I don't remember, like, when. You know, it kind of started, but I, I do recall, you know, it was definitely part of the, the anxiety and the depression. You know, drugs are a really good way to temporarily get rid of anxiety and depression. It doesn't work long term or for very long at all, honestly, but um, for that brief um, amount of time, yeah, it works. But that's about it. And then it just makes it worse on the back end very quickly. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I think I started using that um, as just kind of like, you know, a crutch to be around people, to not feel weird about myself. Um, but pretty early on, I, I want to say like 12, 13 years old is when like I started experimenting with various things and, you know, started on the weekends and, you know, it would started bleeding into the weeks and then it was just, you know pretty much an everyday thing by the time i was probably 15 years old and in so, some way or another
1: yeah and so i think you mentioned that you went into a treatment facility at 17 is that right
0: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. first time i went to treatment i think i was 17 years old i believe i had my birthday in there and turned 18 at that point oh had that's
1: how was that birthday
0: <laughs> not the worst definitely had worse it was worse when yeah. i was uh not sober I had many of those spent, spent a few birthdays either in um Jail or treatment, so yeah. is what it is. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Not, uh, not the best, not the worst though.
1: So, for going to treatment that young, like, you know, were your parents being supportive and bringing you there? Was it something that you chose on your own volition? Like, how did that come about?
0: A little bit of both. So I have like the best parents um, you could ever have. They're the nicest people in the world. I had a great childhood. I owe them so much. I definitely would not be sitting here. Probably, I probably wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for them and their caring and love. So I was like really blessed when it came to them. And, um, you know, they're still still have a great relationship with them today. It's probably stronger and better than ever. But so, yeah, they've they've been absolutely sort of um, with me for me um, through my entire Addiction, and I know it's it's definitely taken a toll on them throughout the years. So I got to give them some credit there. But yeah, they're very supportive in getting me in to my the, that first treatment and just kind of trying to help and meet um, whatever you know needs I had at that point.
1: Yeah, that must be tough to see your your kid at that point. I mean, ever go through that. Yeah, so.
0: can only imagine. Yeah.
1: So going to the treatment facility, you know, I always just want to give, I guess, listeners a view of what that kind of experience can be. And I I think you had mentioned you've gone to a few of them. So just talking through like the process and, and, you know, what it entails once you're there.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, it it was different each time. I went to kind of the traditional treatment you think of, like 28 days. So you're there, you stay there, you go through a lot of groups and therapy and talking about your addiction with, with other people um, that are kind of going through the same thing. So in that way, it's extremely cathartic and therapeutic to be able to do that. You learn skills on how to you know regulate emotions, um, on how to deal with cravings and that kind of thing. And I think one of the main things, it's just do out of your life for 28 days. So yeah, huge fan of treatment. 28 days for most of us is not enough. 28 days is just a start, you know, I, I don't think, and maybe the first time I went 28 days was maybe enough, but the second and third times I went, it's like, I was just... Getting back to like, I don't, I don't even want to say like a baseline. I was just starting to be like maybe a human being again. Took at least six months. So there's very, very good things about the 28 day um, approach, in my opinion. But there needs to be some kind of follow up after. Most of us are not, you know, fixed after 20 days. Some people go in 28 days, bam, like never, never drink or use again. And like, I don't want to say I don't like those people, but they, I'm, I'm jealous of them because I wish that was part of my story. I'm just like, yeah, 28 days, I got that you know they taught me everything I needed it was not the case
1: so what is the there's no transition plan generally from what you've experienced like afterwards
0: there, there, there is and a lot of treatment centers especially now are really realizing um, the benefits of that and there's a lot of lo- more long-term programs out there now from six months to a year to 18 months so they, they, they realize that and they're getting better. And a lot of, there's a lot of really good programs out there that um, have like some kind of transitioning. So yeah, you go to your 28 days of inpatient um, and then maybe you get out and you're, you're still like in like maybe a sober living environment and you're taking groups three to four days a week or, um, and then there's a step down process from that where you're still living in um, like maybe a sober living house of some sort. but you can go get a job. So yeah, there's like phases in some of these programs now. And and to me, especially if you're, you know, if you're like me and you're shooting heroin every single day or using meth or drinking every single day, like that's probably one of your better options. you know, everybody's different. And I'm sure I'll touch on this in some point in recovery. And there's different, you know, pathways for everybody. But for a lot of us, we probably need that initially.
1: Yeah. So from that first treatment facility after the 28 days, like where, where, where do you go next? What is the next piece of the the story there?
0: That was like pretty early on. So I remember that the first one, 28 days um, I was out after that. I think like they told me to go to some AA meetings or something. And I still remember my first AA meeting very well though. I was by far the youngest person there probably by 20 years I remember you could still smoke in the meetings at that time. And oh, it was wow. in this like tiny little room. There's probably like 15 of us in there. Just and smoke filled person, and you're yeah, like... Just, yeah, <laughs> you literally were just like pushing curtains away of smoke um, to just get to a chair. And yeah, it was not... It wasn't a terrible experience, but like, yeah, I didn't really feel like that was my community. 40 to 50 year old plus people smoking cigarettes, sitting in a room. Just, yeah, it's 18 yeah. years old. It was not really kind of my thing. So didn't really do too much follow-up recovery after that. And I think I actually lasted like five or six months, which was like, "Eh, that's not bad, you know, to start with. But yeah, there was uh a pretty quick relapse after that. And then it just kind of started up again with, you know, drinking and all that stuff.
1: I know we talked a little bit about a couple of relapses that you you've gone through and Mm -hmm. I want to be cognizant of what you're comfortable sharing, but what were the triggers for you for those experiences?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think initially it was kind of like, oh, I've been doing really, you know, I've been doing really well. Like I can probably just have a few drinks here and there. Eventually, like you realize that that's that's not the case at all, especially you know when I kinda graduated to like a little bit harder drugs, you know like you're not you You're never just like, oh, I can, I'm just going to shoot heroin tonight. You know, that's, that's, that's a normal thing to do. That's what normal people do. No, like there's no kidding yourself at that point. But I think early on, like, yeah, absolutely. It was like, oh, I can just have one drink at this party, have a few, you know, a few hits of weed, like I'm going to be all right. Like it's, you know, yeah, initially that was kind of the thought process or I'm not going to drink hard liquor. I'm only going to drink beer because I won't get as dry, I won't black out at least, you know? So there's like those stupid justifications, I think initially that you can tell yourself to get away with it. And initially, like, when I was younger, you know, 18, 19, 20, I think I could get away with those excuses. Eventually, after, you know, many relapses after that and the harder drugs, it's like, nah, I just don't like who I am right now. No other reason or don't really need much reason at all. I just want to get high.
1: In that time period, like, you know, what's going on around you? Are you in college? Are you... I'm just trying to understand I sort was, of the trajectory yeah, too. Yeah.
0: yeah. So I graduated high school and um, yeah, applied to a few different schools. I was not really into um, that at that point. I did. I think I stayed home for a year and had a job and used here and there. And yeah, it wasn't really great. I ended up going to school in Minnesota for a while and had some tragic relapses, I guess you could say, in which um, yeah, had some pretty terrible things happened and hurt some really close people to me. That was tough. I think that was one of the relapses that scared me enough at that point to actually quit for a while. Mm -hmm. I was just so terrified. I was a blackout violence drinker when I drank. That's never, you know, Blackout and get violent. There's uh, very terrible consequences and terrible things that can happen with that. So yeah, there was a lot of some pretty dark times uh, during that uh, period from 19 to 2021, 20, I think.
1: So I think you mentioned too that you eventually moved to Colorado. I mean, obviously you moved there, but you mentioned in your journey, you moved there.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so before that, I actually moved to Florida. I was kind of after one of these, uh, like I was just saying, kind of had one of these tragic relapses and pulled the old, what we call it in recovery, uh, geographic. And you just kind of run away as far as you can from your problems, mm. and a whole nother story. Like we probably won't go. I'm not going to go into. But I was actually like, a, I grew up wakeboarding, and I was a really good wakeboarder. So Florida's like one. I know. I don't think I mentioned that ever, but um, yeah, Florida's like the mecca of wakeboarding. So I thought, hey, I'll move down to Florida. I'll start wakeboarding down there. Nobody knows me. I can run away from all my problems um, oh my and gosh. do a whole different thing down there. And, and that obviously didn't go as planned. And yeah I relapsed several times there and started getting into um you know intravenous opiate use, which was like a pretty fast downfall, and that's where I ended up in the second uh, rehab, actually back here in Minnesota. got out of that rehab and ended up relapsing on heroin several more times before I ended up moving to Colorado to live in a sober house here mm-hmm. so a lot of a lot of a lot of stories and a lot of time in between there sorry.
1: Yeah. I'm like, wait a second. (laughs) So obviously like cognizant of the type of story you're telling and that there's some dark moments in it, but what wakeboarding? Like you didn't even mention that earlier. (laughs) Like, okay. So hold on, hold on, hold on. So, okay. So you can play hockey. You can fish, mountain bike, climbing. Hold on. Snowshoeing, snowboarding. Wait a second. I have more wakeboarding. What am I missing? Oh, oh, oh! Boxing,
0: boxing, yeah.
1: <laughs> is there yeah. any? Is there any sports that you like? Don't
0: do. <laughs> Honestly, like no. Nah. Basketball. I mean, I, I like oh, I it,
1: missed it. Basketball. I, yeah, basketball.
0: Too. Yeah. Um, no, I'm like weirdly one of those people that was just like blessed with that gift of athleticism, and yeah, yeah I've uh, definitely even through all this, like that has been. Always always been part of my life in one way or another.
1: Okay, so Colorado. Now we're in the stage of living in sober houses, right? So... Again, this is sort of an area where I feel like people hear about these houses and they're sometimes called, like, are they called halfway houses or like, I yeah, I don't know, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so I just want to give people more experiential information from, from you and your, your yeah. time there.
0: Yeah, so, uh, yeah. There's usually a difference between um, a sober living house and a halfway house. So a sober living house is typically voluntary and it's usually like a lot of people getting out of a uh, treatment or other facilities where you live with a bunch of other people who are also in recovery from drugs and alcohol. A halfway house is usually court ordered for better, or lack of a better term. Like you, a lot of times when you get out of uh, prison and you're still on parole or something, you'll be put into a halfway house where you're living with a bunch of other um, you know, people who have recently been released from prison as well. It does have similar you know, expectations to a sober house, but there's usually quite a bit more regulations on a halfway house compared to a sober living facility. Okay. Yeah.
1: That's embarrassing that I got that mixed up, but um, uh, no I'll worries. just let it stand. <laughs>
0: yeah. People no, need to know. <laughs> just, yeah, yeah. It's not commonly known. I think those, those terms oftentimes get interchanged in, in yeah. between both of them. So, yeah.
1: Okay. But, so then sober living, t- talk about that experience.
0: Yeah. I wish, you know, I wish I would have done it right when I got out of um, treatment, I went to a great treatment facility up in Minnesota Minnesota is the land of 10,000 lakes also the land of uh, 10,000 um, rehabs um, I don't know where why that is or where that comes from but yeah we have a lot of rehabs in Minnesota as well um, so I wish I would have done that straight out of uh, rehab because I did not I went back and like lived in my hometown at I don't even remember how old I was 22 23 24 I don't know but yeah it just was not a good environment and relapsed and um, continued using and it was just I was hating life, so needed to make a change. And I don't know why I chose Colorado. Like there was no real um, reason. I'd only been out here once before, but I was just like, yeah, I need to go somewhere different. Maybe the mountains have something. I don't know. So yeah, I moved to a sober living house in uh, Loveland, Colorado, and I love sober living. I would recommend it to anybody. It's a great, great environment. You're living with other people who are having like. had similar experiences to you, you immediately have that community. There is like a lot of, you know, rules um, around. So you got chores, you have to do things, you have check-ins at nights, you have to go and take breathalyzers and UAs quite often. So there's that accountability factor. um, Mm -hmm. And you have that immediate support system with all the guys you're living with there. So um, I still have some like really good friends um, from that initial that initial sober living facility and yeah it was awesome Having mean said that there's also the downsides of it that yeah you're with a bunch of um, other people with issues with addiction there's gonna be issues no matter what anytime you live with anybody And a lot of people, there's always going to be those, those issues. But, Mm. you know, you throw that addiction and a bunch of crazy guys living in a house, like, yeah, there might be some further stuff that happens. And I did end up getting kicked out of that one by no one else's fault. It was completely mine, just drinking and using. And I, I just could not stop using heroin. So I was using through most of the time, at least half the time I was at that house. And eventually, you know, I eventually got caught and got kicked out keeping the, the fake urine on you at all times, doing that kind of stuff, just trying to like not get thrown on the streets. usually they will have a pretty strict policy for, for everyone else's safety that, yeah, if you're using, you get kicked out pretty much immediately. And I'm living in Colorado with, you know, no, didn't know anybody, didn't have anywhere to go. So I didn't mm-hmm. want up on the street. I also didn't want to use, but.
1: Yeah. Did moving to Colorado feel different than the move to florida as far as like what is it called pulling a geographic is that the right term
0: yeah i yeah that this one was different i mean in a sense like i was still i was still running from some problems but it wasn't like the time before where i didn't confront those issues at all and Mm. just like just literally ran away from them and didn't just wanted to ignore them the second time it was just like I, i knew Life was not going to work for me. I needed something more. Um, I needed something different. I needed some new experiences. Um, So there was more a positive aspect. I know like some, probably some old, my old AA's, old school AA friends would be rolling their eyes and be like, nah, you're just, just got, that was just a geographic, but whatever. I don't know. This, but this definitely felt different. You know, the inspiration, I wanted to make a better life for myself. And I wasn't, you know, running from that much at that point.
1: Were you at this time, were you already doing all the outdoor sports that you do now or no. is that, will that come later? Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's so, I, you know, I grew up snowboarding in Minnesota, but it was a much different snowboarding. We had one small hill, probably yeah, 45 minutes outside of our town. And like, when I say hill, it, it was a hill. I don't think people <laughs> in Colorado like know what we what what we grew up on back in Minnesota it was just this ice slope like probably 200 yards maybe was the longest run of ice (laughs) just an ice slope so that was my like introduction to snowboarding and and we we oftentimes like pulled each other behind the snowmobile out of lakes that was by far the best riding we ever did and we'd set up like old canoes and jumps and that kind of stuff out on the lakes out there so Mm -hmm. yeah I had grown up snowboarding but that was about it I really had no didn't really do a lot of outdoor sports, had never rock climbed, had never climbed a mountain or done anything along those lines. So that was that was all new. I had no experience with that.
1: Then after these couple of sober living situations, what was the tipping point for you in which you switched over to being in, you know, what you call active recovery for you?
0: Yeah. I mean, it was a long process. I got kicked out of, uh, I think, of three different sober houses. Um, I was on methadone for a while. I was on Suboxone as well for I was on Suboxone for a very long time. Sorry, what um, what
1: are what is Suboxone?
0: Uh, Suboxone is a opiate uh, opiate replacement. So what it does is kind of binds to your opiate receptors in your brain. So. It decreases your cravings and does not allow you to use um, heroin so when you use heroin it just blocks that from taking any effect on your body so mm. basically if you're taking suboxone or any form of that um, the locks a few different there's a few different kinds out there now yeah. um, I'm blanking all the names but anyway yeah you it decreases your cravings and even if you use it does has no effect when you're on it so pretty much yeah you can't use so it's, it's, it's a miracle drug in that sense. Like I would go from like a down and out, you know, completely strung out heroin addict to a feeling good, productive member of society within like a day or two. So it has like some great uh, potential. It's hard to get off of. There is withdrawals that are associated with that. So a lot of us, and I did many, many times, tried to get off of it and went back to using heroin immediately. I didn't want to come deal with the withdrawals from that. And that was a vicious cycle as well. So mm. went through that for years and years, you know, the, probably four or five years of continuously getting off that relapsing on heroin. And I also started using cocaine and heroin. So shooting up shooting speed balls at that point a lot. Mm-hmm. And yeah, eventually ended up in rehab again. Another solstice got kicked out of that one again, immediately. I think I relapsed out of that rehab within I think less than 48 hours of getting out of that one. So yeah, there was uh, a lot, a lot of heroin use at that time. I just could not break that pattern. Again, that kind of comes back to the, what we were talking about before I went to 28 days, 28 days I got out of there, I was still in like full withdrawal for the most part, just in so much pain. And I just wanted like a little bit of reprieve from that. And I, you know, I remember the first, I was supposed to go to an NA meeting And instead, I went downtown and scored a bunch of heroin. And then that was it. I was off to the races. I had to check into my sober house. The next day, I showed up completely high. It was weird. It was a a Christian sober house. And most of them didn't. I don't know if they just didn't know what heroin addiction looked like or or what. Or they were just, you know, they're Christians. So they're really, really nice people. And they just wanted to help me or they thought they could. Um, But I remember falling asleep at the table while we were eating dinner. And then immediately after dinner... I ran to the bathroom to vomit, but I didn't know where the bathroom was because I'd never been there. So I vomited all over the floor and they still took me in. Yeah. But I got kicked out pretty quickly after that for obvious reasons because I did not stop using it all.
1: So then what brings you, I guess, to now this period <laughs> of, of, yeah, I'm just I'm yeah. so fascinated by, you know, you've been through so much, you've been through this cycle, You you know, you've had so much stuff happen in your life. Because of this, and then there's yeah. like a, a moment or a bunch of moments that kind of come together really serendipitously many times, and I, I just mm-hmm. think that that can be you know really beautiful for other people to hear as
0: well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And It's hard to touch on those those like going through some of these stories. So I apologize. no, no. This but, is
1: this is exactly what I wanted yeah. you to share. You know, this is important yeah, to share. So thank you for so doing that. Uh,
0: so after that, I kind of realized. That Again, it it kind of comes back to like it's half geographic, um, pulling that whole maneuver again, but I kind of realized that I needed to get out of the city. The city was not my place. It was just too tempting for, for many reasons. So I ended up leaving again, and you know this whole time, like I don't want to be using, like it's not something I'm enjoying at this point. Life is miserable, like this through this whole time. It is just misery after misery, yeah. and nothing like it. Yeah, it was painful all the time. Um, life was not fun for the most part, and I, you know, I kept trying to get back into school. I had had to um, drop out of school several times through these points. I was going to Metro State. I ended up graduating with a de- uh, bachelor's degree um, after attending six total universities and three different states. So I have a long history of school career as well. Um, (laughs) And so I'm dropping out of school constantly, trying to get back into it. Finally, I get out of Denver and moved up to Aspen, Colorado in the hopes of just kind of creating a new life. Well, you know, the, the, the old saying is like, wherever you go, there you are, mm-hmm. and there are your problems too. So I wasn't really willing to address these problems at that point and, you know, was trying here and there. Like I tried going to meetings, I tried doing different things and it was slowly, you know, I, w- I was learning things, I was picking things up on my own after some exploration, but like there was still, there the, that use was still there and it kept coming back and I would stay sober maybe for, you know, a week at a time and then for whatever reason I would go back out and use and at that point it started getting really dangerous I was on Suboxone again I tried getting off and ended up relapsing the one dangerous thing about that is when when you're using your tolerance is gets uh, raised up so you're able to do a lot more well then when you quit for a while your tolerance decreases mm. rapidly so that next time you go out and you use even less than you normally were um there's a very good chance you could overdose and i had some pretty serious overdoses i was dead very very dead um, and they were able to bring me back with uh several shots of narcan and some cpr and i'd like to say like oh then i got it you know i was scared like no that that wasn't it at all i just had to change my behavior i I would write notes i would put notes in my front pocket and be like hey if you find me i probably overdosed on heroin call the ambulance to shoot me up with narcan you know and i would use in like public places so I I fully expected to overdose again. I just didn't want to die. I knew that, but I wasn't also willing to quit. So there was like that whole thing going on in my head at this point. Like, I don't want to die. I don't want to stop using but I know I can't use anymore. Otherwise I will die. So there was like, it's that old conundrum and paradox for that. addict. You know, you're killing yourself, you know, you're going to die here. And there was like several arrests and stuff in between there. And the, the old saying is jails institutions and death. If we keep using like, that's what's going to come of us. And like, yeah, absolutely. I experienced all of those things. And luckily somehow I'm not dead. So there was, you know, I knew that this had to be addressed. I knew this had to like, something had to come to a head. And I just started to kind of explore and figure out different things. And this is, you know, through this time, I'm still getting into the outdoors here and there. And I'm creating a life around that. And I kind of realized like, okay, I need to figure out my passions, what I'm passionate about, and kind of move towards that. It was a struggle. I was able to get into Colorado Mountain College in Glenwood Springs and started taking classes there for recreation and outdoor education. And I think that's kind of when it like started to click. Like, I really enjoy doing this. You know, this is fun. This is this is something different than anything else I've experienced. This is a challenge for me. And started moving in that direction to find these new challenges and self-exploration and, you know, finding different avenues of recovery there while still going to a lot of meetings and still doing the that that type of thing so yeah that was kind of one of the major turning points I was able to also find a community of friends for the first time I had been on Colorado I'd probably been living here six years and I don't think I really had a friend through that entire time like I don't I always consider like my friends, like who I can call if I got a flat tire on the road, you know, who would I call? Like, I, don't, I didn't have one, a single person that I could probably could have called in Colorado that would have been able to come pick me up for those first six years. But in Glenwood Springs, I was able to kind of cultivate that, have some friends and create, start creating this community of people that, you know, like to do things, um, you know, knew my knew my background. Somewhere, somewhere in recovery, most weren't actually, which was kind of strange. Um, and they're actually still some of my best friends today. They were just happened to be very awesome, supportive people. They would still go do their thing, you know, at night. And I would I would either go home or, or they would have a night where they're hanging out with me and they wouldn't use or drink or do anything. They were just those kind of people who were very supportive. So that was a huge turning point was finding that community of people and you know, having some friends and being able to kind of start on that path to recovery.
1: Yeah. I think the thing that is really pointed to me is finding the people – to your point that you can call if you get a flat tire that will come yes. help you if you need help in a way that is not destructive to your recovery. And I think the other part of that too is like, I'm sure at that point, maybe you had this experience too, like other friends quoting thought where you know, in your circle, you know, those people kind of fade out when you start mm-hmm. to have these more true friendships. Did you find that was the case as well?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, all the, the few people that I had, I guess you, you call called they, they were never friends, but the people I used with, as soon as yeah. I stopped using, I had never heard from them again. You know, there was no, hey, how you doing kind of thing or like, you know, texting. No, it was, yeah. if I'm not using, they're not around. So you have to figure out who your real friends are through those times as well
1: and so then in in like going outside and doing all these activities with this like new group of people who are incredibly supportive you know what were some of the joyful moments that you were having while you're figuring out that you really love this outdoor recreation whatever form that might take
0: yeah i remember <laughs> yeah. <laughs> however many
1: of the yeah. sports
0: <laughs> uh, we uh, one of the weirdest ones and one of the I think most memorable one was just we used to we used to just go tubing down the Colorado River with a bunch of us and it was like now that I think about it it's super you know none of us have like um, PFDs on or anything like along those lines and we were just out there in tubes like just laughing and like struggling and falling around but just being outdoors together and like enjoying that was was amazing and I think that was one of the just had this like very distinct memory of just like laughing so hard I was crying and then like on the water and like water just everywhere and like yeah that was just an amazing time but I think getting out in the mountains too we started like climbing uh hiking 14ers here and there and being able to uh, I'm not a very cardio working person like okay. I don't yeah running sure. is well I mean that was a little <laughs> different I just happened to like it just happens with the sports that I'm doing but like yeah. running is not a thing to me like that is no that's something you only do like if you're in danger but like <laughs> as far as pleasure or sport like that's one thing I don't really do I did go on a run today, so I guess I can't completely say yeah, that see, I Yeah, do I see.
1: T- I told you I didn't believe you. <laughs>
0: okay. yeah, <laughs> okay. But yeah Anyways. So like, <laughs> yeah, struggling and getting up on top of those mountains was just like, I mean – both you know as a metaphor climbing that mountain and struggling through it for a metaphor for recovery and doing it in real life like it's just yeah it was mm. a major experience and had a lot of those types of experiences you know before moving there before finding that those those people and yeah once i got that, having those experiences just really started to change change my way of thinking i guess
1: and so now, I think it's kind of beautiful and full circle from just listening to your story and listening to what you do now. So now you create community for other people who are going through addiction and recovery. Yeah, and that's yeah. that's. I mean, it's fucking
0: like, amazing. It's,
1: yeah, it's, like it's unbelievable.
0: It's yeah, yeah. After there's so many things that have led up to this point, but yeah, eventually you know, um, finding recovery and you know getting back into school and finding my passions uh, and my two most absolute pins are working with people in recovery and outdoors now to be able to combine them in the same uh, realm and give back because I've taken I feel like I've taken so much in my life um, I've taken way more than I've given so to be able to kind of start giving back in that area is just I mean it's, it's absolutely amazing and I, I couldn't think of. Anything else I'd really rather be doing right now.
1: And so in those classes that you're teaching, I don't know if you have any experiences that really jump out to you, but I'm just interested in hearing like, you know, small moments that you notice with people that really like are shifting their perspective as they like complete a rock climb for the first time or whatever you know I can't keep track of all the different (laughs) classes or if they just like figure something out for the first time you're kind of there to witness that kind of stuff. So, you know, what has been some of the cool moments that you've been able to witness in that?
0: Yeah, there's, there's been a lot. I think some of the, the, my favorite moments that I still think about like every single day is uh, we, we work with um, another treatment facility and we do programs for the people that are in, in, inpatient there. (laughs) Um, And like, obviously that's part of my story was going to treatment. So I get to now go and put on these programs for people that are in treatment and i have been able to like they've never been on a rock wall before they're terrified of heights and i get to watch them and support them i I teach them how to tie a knot um and get them on top of the wall and just watch them like break down these barriers in front of my eyes and just like thinking that i have like a little bit of part of that and now some of these people are avid rock climbers and that's like a huge part of their recovery and they stayed sober ever since that time so and like there's i have several people that I've been able to witness that with. And, you know, like they're, I got their numbers in my phone. And I, you know, I, I still talk to them. We go climb together. Like, I mean, that, that's what it's all about, you know, being there for them at the start and just helping in whatever way I possibly can and just watching them grow and become stronger in their recovery Use and then utilizing, like, the same kind of things that um, I do, you know, whether it's um, rock climbing or anything to kind of also facilitate that recovery is just, like, absolutely amazing.
1: And so now when you're thinking about, like your recovery, your active recovery, and kind of the toolkit, if you will, that you use to remain Mm -hmm. in that? What comes to mind besides, obviously, like we're talking a lot about outdoor sports, how they're therapeutic and breaking down barriers for yourself and others. But, you know, outside of that, what kind of things do you um, use as part of your active recovery?
0: Yeah, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of things. I think one of the biggest ones, and especially what I found through the Phoenix and through other avenues of recovery is just having a community to rely on so that I don't have to do it all by myself. I'm a pretty self-reliant person and pretty independent when it comes to those. Well, pretty much everything, but especially when it was um, with my recovery, I try to do literally everything myself. And I still have a lot of tools that I can utilize by myself. But being able to rely on a community because I don't, I don't have all the answers. I, I don't. I wish I knew what I was doing most of the time. Like, no, I'm, I'm still flailing most of the time but like a lot of it happens to work but i can rely on that community to give me support if you know i'm struggling or i just need someone to talk to or just hang out with to be able to get me through those those hard times
1: yeah that's that's really beautiful and i think something that transparently i mean as part of this podcast like i i I've been in quarantine the entire time that we have had, <laughs> that I've been sober. So yeah. um, <laughs> finding community is, <laughs> yeah. is like, you know, the next step, I think, for me. But I feel like yeah, if you yeah. can
0: do it in quarantine, then I feel like once you find a community, like it's going to really flourish. But, so that's, yeah. uh, that's awesome. That's
1: oh, thanks, man. Yeah. One other thing I was interested in when we talked last time and now in doing research for our conversation, one of the things I normally do is I look up people's Instagram and I look up people's Mm. Facebook and I like follow what they've been doing recently, you know, so I can like have that as fodder. You don't have any of that.
0: No, I don't have a single social media platform or (laughs) yeah, no, absolutely. Is that intentional? It is definitely intentional. Yeah.
1: Is that kind of part of, do you feel like your like toolkit as well to just not have that kind of stuff in your life that those influences?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I felt like through so much of my life I was chasing either like approval or some kind of like extrinsic motivation, you know, like mm. before before with sports or whatever, like it's I wanted to be the best and that's what gave me satisfaction being the best and having other people tell me I was the best Mm -hmm. so when it came to like outdoor sports I was not I was terrible I'm still pretty bad like I do a lot of things but I'm not really good at them the motivation that came from that was just for myself it was completely intrinsic I only did it for myself so part of the uh, kind of my recovery like philosophy and some of my greater principles are just doing things that I enjoy just sole reason because I enjoy them I don't you know, posting a picture I feel like will give me that extrinsic motivation was someone's like oh you're awesome because you did that and then I'll start going down that avenue kind of thing doing doing things for other people when this this is about me this is this is what I want to do for myself
1: yeah man I think that is so awesome I do not have the strength to do that so uh, good on you but to have so much self-awareness around that gosh I think a lot of people could benefit from that as well it's pretty addictive in itself
0: so there's so yeah So there's also that aspect of it as well. Um, And I try not to like, you know, if if people want to utilize social media for for whatever reason they want to utilize, like no judgment, absolutely not, you know. I just know my personality personally and I know that that would be a slippery slope that I can also, I can get addicted to anything, you know, like literally anything. I've been addicted to sparkling water before. Um, which I'm currently drinking. I, I got that under control. I'm doing all right. Um, but yeah, like I could literally get addicted to anything. And I know that social media has that type of hole and dopamine release for me. So like, yeah, it's just something I just kind of steer clear of for that reason as well.
1: Yeah. Well, f- social media and, and uh, bubbly, I yeah. just can't <laughs> stop. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was like telling myself, okay, first year just going to focus on the alcohol. (laughs) Then we'll look at the other stuff I'm addicted to. (laughs) Well, cool, man. So you've given, I think, a lot of awesome advice during this, but I want to ask sort of the same question we ask of every guest on the show. And and that is for someone who's going through their version of addiction, whatever that means, or just Mm -hmm. questioning their lifestyle, what would be the first piece of advice that you would give them?
0: I think just this is this is like the, the hardest question. I mean, I've come up with so many different answers, so many different <laughs> times, and I wish like I had it like down pat, you know. But uh, I I feel like every everyone is you know individually unique in their um, addiction and their recovery. And again, sorry, if there's some core AA listeners out there, I know you're going to be rolling your eyes when I say this, but I believe there there are multiple pathways to recovery and that people are unique in their addiction and in their you know mental health or whatever it is. And to find a path and explore that path, that's going to work best for you. Um, and it takes some fucking work, you know, like it is, this is not easy. Like this is a, this is a constantly, this is a day to day thing for me. Like every day, is work on my recovery. I got to remember that. But I figured out a path that works for me. And now I really enjoy that path. So it seems less and less like work. Mm. But you know, there's there's your traditional avenues like the treatment and um, medication assisted treatment and going to AA or NA or, you know, going to therapy. Um, those are all great avenues and I would highly recommend like exploring all of those and take people's advice when you get there and listen to what they have to say don't take it as like absolute law or fact and figure out the answers for yourself and just again explore 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 figure out what's going to work best for you and your recovery and you're gonna find a lot of avenues that don't work you're gonna fail a lot but that's okay because that's what kind of like makes it all become clearer in the end yeah Wish i had more like i wish i had more just like okay step one you go here step two (laughs) you do this but like yeah no it's i wish it's, it's it's hard it's hard work it's gonna be hard but finding that community and support system is also huge i think for most of us that's the one thing that we have to have in recovery like Probably the most introverted, like self-reliant, um, independent person, isolator. Not that you'll ever find. There's a lot of us out there like like me. But um, um and I I still absolutely need that community 100. Um, percent Otherwise, I would not be where I'm at. You know, right now.
1: I really like what you said. That it was a lot of work. It is a lot of work. But now it's. A lifestyle that I enjoy or the work is what I enjoy doing. So it feels less like work and more just like building, building basically a life that you love, which is really awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Jay, for coming on. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks again to Jay for dealing with me and coming on the show. I just loved chatting with him. He's such a light of good energy coming through even via Zoom. So really appreciate having him on. And I think the thing that really stuck with me, well, there was a few things. First of all, we learned a lot about the actual ins and outs of sober living houses and then the different drugs that sometimes are prescribed to get people off of different drugs, like all that stuff. Yeah, I run a sobriety podcast, but I don't know a ton about that kind of stuff. I've got to be honest with you. So it was really interesting to hear his perspective and his experience with it. Um, It opened up my eyes a lot to those types of things and and the sort of scariness, I would say, of like pharmaceuticals, although that can be also really helpful if that's what you need to come off of drugs, right? So it's a a weird nuanced situation. So that was really interesting. And then the other thing that really stuck with me, which I'm sure stuck with a lot of you, is really finding that supportive group. How damn important that is. If you have people in your life even if you're not sober yet, but you're thinking about it or, you know, you're, you're, maybe you're feeling like you're in the throes of addiction right now, if that's what you want to label it, you know, whatever it makes sense to you. But if there's people in your life who you're worried about their reactions, if you go sober, get those people out of there. Those people don't need to be in your life, right? I mean, if you're making a decision for your health, and you're worried about people making fun of you or giving you crap for it, get rid of those people. Fuck those people. I'll say it. Yeah. And that's just not in the outdoorsy space, but that's with anyone, right? Guys, we only have a little bit of time on this earth. Do not spend it with people who are not going to be supportive of decisions you're making for your own well-being, Okay, I'll get off my soapbox there. But I do think having that group that you can go out in the outdoors with and either learn from them or you can kind of show them some stuff. I think that's so, so important. And of course, that's not the thing that fixes you or (laughs) gives you, you know, helps whatever ails you. But it is a big, big part of the overall toolkit to be able to have those experiences and share them with other people. So those were the Two main areas that really stuck with me. Jay doesn't have any social media, which I really appreciate. So I will not be shouting out anything except for the Phoenix. They're a great community. So go check them out. Like I said, they're free and they're nonprofit. And the only requirement for membership is 48 hours of continuous sobriety. So really cool group. And you should definitely check them out if you're looking for that type of community community. Thank you again for listening, of course. And as always, you can find us on the social interwebs and we'll catch you next week.